On the morning of April 27th, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi will fly to Wuhan to meet his counterpart in China, President Xi Jinping. These two leaders are going to take charge of the India-China bilateral and perhaps create a new geopolitics and geoeconomics for Asia and perhaps the world. There will be nobody in the meeting except the two leaders. They will discuss amongst themselves what is best for both their countries and what is best for both the countries towards each other. Professor Nalapat discusses. Professor, you have uh, what in your view are the three areas which can turn the relationship currently viewed as one of unequals into one of equals? Well, I'd like to point out that the Chinese take the long view. And in the long view, India and China are not going to be unequal. The Americans took the long view in the 1970s. And at that time, China was way below the United States in terms of its economic output and in terms of, frankly, its, national, its resilience. But the Americans treated China as an equal because they took the long view. The Chinese are now doing a similar thing with India, taking the long view of India. And the reality is that in about 15 to 20 years, assuming that we have a hope, the, an incompetent governments, assuming that we have a corrupt, dysfunctional bureaucracy that normally works against the national interest rather than for the national interest, even with all this, the people of India are going to ensure India becomes the third biggest economy on the planet in about 13, 14, 15, 16 years' time. So the Chinese look way beyond 13, 14, 15, 16 years. So whenever they go into their statistics, whenever they go into their computers, whatever scenario they build, I think one fact will be inescapable to them, which is that India is going to be the third biggest economy in the world in a, in, for the Chinese a short period of time. Now, you had a situation in the 1980s, 1970, late 70s, 80s, in which United States and China combined against Russia. So these, they were in a sense the top three powers and two of them combined against the third. The Chinese, I think, are very clear they don't want to repeat that. They don't want India and the US to combine against them. They believe they're going to be the top power in the world. Frankly, a lot of us believe that the United States is going to be second. And for quite some time, we are going to be third. They don't want the second and third power to combine against the first, which is China. Now, all this, when I say they, I mean the core of the Chinese Communist Party. One of the problems that has beset policy to India on the part of China is that India has been given a much lower priority than, let's say, the United States or Japan or Europe. India has been given, uh, basically, it's been handed over to the foreign ministry, it's been handed over to the military, it's been handed over to, you know, to the to the uh, middling rungs, let's say, of the party establishment and not the top rung. Now, this relationship is too important for that. It has to be handled by the top rung on both sides. And the good news, I would say, is that Xi Jinping from the very start has accepted the need for China to look upon India as a global power, as a major power, and make better relations with India a priority. He's been having problems with his bureaucracy on that. He's been having major problems with his military on that. I'm sorry to say the Chinese military may look Chinese on the outside. A large part of their brain 
is provided by the Pakistan army, unfortunately. Their thinking on India is very largely based on what their friends in the Pakistan army tell them. So as a consequence, I think it has been very clear to the Chinese leadership that the suggestions that are coming from their own establishment, from their own bureaucracy, from their own military, are suggestions which frankly have not been helpful even to overall Chinese interests except in the very short run. So here Xi Jinping is taking command. This is a man who's taken command of the party, he's taken command of the military, he's taken command of economic policy, he's taken command of foreign policy, and now I'm happy to say he's taking command of policy vis-a-vis -vis India. On our side, uh, Narendra Modi, when he was Chief Minister of Gujarat, he always had an open door towards Chinese investment. He was in China and he was treated exceptionally well in China. I remember that Prime Minister Modi went to China, I think about uh, a year and a half before he took over as the Prime Minister. And a signal was sent from Delhi informally that, look, this is not an important guy. A signal was sent to Japan, a signal was sent to China, don't really make a big play of him. Both the Japanese and the Chinese made a very big play of him. That's pretty shrewd on their part. So from the beginning, I would say Prime Minister Modi has accepted the importance of China in a future calculus of being a great power, which is India. Which is why throughout the Doklam standoff, he ensured that not a single Chinese company was in any way disadvantaged by the numerous wings of a government and a bureaucracy for, for, for whom harassment, frankly, is, in, is, is part of everyday work. I mean, our bureaucracy, for them, harassment is second nature. But Chinese companies were left, I mean, even you know, completely out of that kind of harassment, even more so than normal, or throughout Doklam. And that, in my view, is because of the Prime Minister's understanding that you must have a strong commercial tie with China. I want to end by this particular thing segment by saying very clearly, I have very long held the view that India needs to walk on two legs. The defense and security leg of the, with the US and the commercial, business and economic leg with China. Whereas in the 1970s, 1980s, much of the 1990s, it was indispensable to be a good friend of the US if you wanted to make economic progress. And I must say, our leaders didn't understand that. They were frankly quite hostile to the US during that time. And you've seen the rates of growth of India during that time. From about the end of the 1990s, it's indispensable to have a good relationship with China if you want to make economic progress. Whether it's Japan, whether it's the US, all these countries that some of us, you know, experts, and analysts are talking about as being our partners in any, you know, in activities against China. They all com are completely interlocked with the Chinese economy. I mean, you know, Japan or the US, their relationship with China is way more than us. The number of flights between the Japanese cities and, and Chinese cities, I mean, there's no comparison with the puny number of flights that we have between Chinese cities and Indian cities. Absolutely puny from the, you know, the, the flights we have with each other. So we have this kind of a, some of us have this kind of a dream that look, all these countries are basically enemies of China, they're going to gang up. They're not enemies of China, they're not going to gang up. 
they are in fact very strong business partners of China. And I think Prime Minister Modi is a shrewd Gujarati. He understands that. So both the Prime Minister and the President understand the importance of good relations with each other. On the one hand, if you've got a good commercial relationship with China, the Americans will take you more seriously. On the other hand, if you've got a good defense and security relationship with America, the Chinese will take you more seriously. Now, we are, the fact that we are way too important for China has finally come to the top of the Chinese leadership. So Xi Jinping has taken command of India policy. I hope President Trump takes command of India policy. For some time, Obama did. The last two years of Obama, he took command of India policy. Trump, in the last two, next two and a half years of his administration, has to take command of, of India policy for the situation to be, to be, the potential to be actualized fully. So I'd like to say this meeting is between two leaders who together administer 40% of the world's population. This is between the future number one country in the world, number one economy in the world, and the future number three economy in the world. It's between two countries that together have 5,000 years of human history. And two countries, if they come together, will make an immediate impact on commodity markets, on a lot of economic parameters for mutual benefit. This is understood, this is understood by the Prime Minister, it's understood by Xi Jinping, and, I'm, and therefore, they and they alone are meeting. When I was in Beijing, I was very clearly told that, look, the leaders have made it clear, the two leaders have made it clear, interpreters, fine, but nobody else. They don't want any static. So let me say, this is not a meeting between two DGMOs. This is not a meeting between two national security advisors. This is not a meeting between two foreign ministers or commerce ministers or defense ministers. This is a meeting between heads of government of two of the top four countries in the world. Modi, Xi, Putin and Trump are the top four leaders of the, of the globe today. And this is a meeting between two of these top four. Let's understand this is a summit of two powerful people who believe in the Asian century. Two powerful patriotic nationalists who want their country to reach the top of the global uh, chain. So that's the importance of this particular meeting. There is an inequality, especially in the business investments in both countries. There is large Indian investment and trade in China, but restrict China, restricted Chinese investment in India. However, one of the largest and most sophisticated investors in Indian startups are Chinese companies. Given the worry on China being a surveillance state, which Will increasing such investments pose a significant risk to India? Look, you know, the British, the Americans, the Germans, the Pakistanis, the Maldivians, every one of them snoops on India. I'm, my point is very clear. You have got the, the only way India will be secure is if we have 10 to 12% growth and we become a big economy and we become a middle income economy. We're not going to be secure any other way. So this, I mean, number one. Number two, given the way capital is structured, what stops a Chinese entity from, from setting up a European uh, an enterprise, which is just a label on a door, and then that enterprise, you know, give, sending capital to us. Uh, for example, a lot of people in India, exporters, 
do that. I have, I have tracked a lot of exports. They reach some entity in the Bahamas or the St. Kitts or places like that. And suddenly the Indian company sells to the St. Kitts company or the Bahamas company at a very moderate, modest price. And in seconds, that company resells to somebody else at a high price. It's obviously done to basically undervalue your exports. The government of India doesn't seem to be at all concerned about it. We have a government today where the taxman is running riot, but he doesn't seem to bother about the fact that Indian companies are exporting and the prices that they're exporting are way below the prices that the same goods are being charged by other countries or that re-export is taking place almost immediately. I mean, it's always been a wonder to me that our officials are so smart they can count 2 plus 2 very easily, but they don't seem to be understanding this massive loot of the country that's going on because of under-invoicing and over-invoicing. So, frankly, what are we talking about? You know, you can, I mean, you can, Chinese can come any number of ways to India, but let me tell you, they are not going to come unless they're treated with respect. Chinese are Asians. They believe in faith. We believe in faith. And frankly, even something like the Bank of China not being allowed to come to India. I mean, what does that say? And every day you've got newspapers talking about, you know, Chinese entities being espionage and other things. Look, let me assure you, a lot of espionage takes place through companies. And not, and not those companies are not only Chinese, they're companies belonging to at least three dozen countries in the world. So frankly, this obsession that we have with, uh, with, you know, with China, as a security threat, China as an espionage threat is absurd for a simple reason. Our main security threat is the lack of economic development, is the lack of social development, the inequalities in our society, the tensions in different social groups. And that is actually, if I may say so, the main social threat we have. Like Deng Xiaoping did, we need to focus 100% for one generation on growing India. We have to follow Deng Xiaoping. When Modi came as chief, as chief minister to China, I mean, I was coincidentally there. I wrote a piece in Sunday Guardian that he could be the Deng Xiaoping of India. Quite frankly, uh, I mean, as of now, I haven't seen too many signs of that. Gateway House has recently published a study on Chinese investments in India's neighborhood, which maps out the strategic sectors and geographical areas in South Asia that China has invested in and their repercussions on the recipient countries. The China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, CPEC, remains a bone of contention between India and China. How can both countries move beyond CPEC and focus on greater economic cooperation in South Asia? See, I'd like to point out that this so-called China-Pakistan Economic Corridor passing through Kashmir and being called CPEC is un absolutely impermissible, they have to change the name. But very importantly, let's have an economic corridor with China. Let's do it uh, along with Nepal, along with Myanmar. Let's do it as well. You have the BIMSTEC, for example. Uh, uh, you can have a China-India uh, economic corridor. I had an idea of a China-India economic corridor going through the entire red corridor. And I can assure you, if the Chinese you know, start working on building roads, highways and other infrastructure, there's going to be very little that's red in that corridor in about uh, six to about 10 years' time. So the reality is, we have been blocking, as a matter of fact, Chinese investment in India. 
is not that the Chinese are spreading their investments outside India as a matter of strategy. They're doing it as a default option because we have closed our door to China. The Chinese don't close their door to anybody, to the Japanese, to the Americans, to the Indians, to anybody. But we have done that. And the reason I'll tell you very clearly, our intelligence agencies are led by the nose by agencies of certain countries who do not want India and China to work commercially together in a smooth way. If that happens, telecom, infrastructure, energy, even automobiles tomorrow, there's going to be a serious problem of competition from China. And many of these countries, are, uh, their companies are going to be affected. So what they do, you know, they welcome Chinese tourists, but tell us, for God's sake, don't take Chinese tourists. They're all subversive. They welcome Chinese investment tell us, please don't touch Chinese investment. You know, it's terrible. You'll have a debt trap. You'll be in serious trouble. I mean, you know, I mean, and surprisingly, I mean, our, the, those who are handling policy in India seem to be falling for this kind of thing. No, uh, and intelligence agencies should not be led by the nose by foreign agencies because each agency will reflect the views and interests of that particular country. And let me tell you that there, there are very major countries who have a very clear interest in ensuring that commercial and business cooperation India and China remain at the low and anemic level it here is. Frankly, you know, a lot of our mind space has been invaded and occupied by entities which have got outside interests. And a lot of our education space also. Take, for example, geopolitics. You know, most of our uh, concepts of geopolitics are basically what's good for the West or what's good for China or even in some cases what's good for Pakistan, but not what's good for us. It's not India-centric at all. So we talk about India first and we put India last in our policies. So I'd like to say that this big bogey of China wanting to, you know, take over India, launch a military campaign, use CPEC to have tanks flooding the, the I mean, the, no, the, the Rajasthan and going into Delhi. Look, the Chinese are not crazy. We are not crazy. Neither side would like a war with each other. I'm very convinced of that. And I think this meeting between Xi and Modi are two sane, sensible, powerful leaders who understand it will be a tragedy if the two countries fight each other. And I think they're going to do everything possible to ensure it does not happen. Now, Doklam. We, you know, the Chinese have been even more hysterical in their media about Doklam than we have. The first time I've seen the Chinese so totally hysterical. I don't know which person in the military or which person in the foreign ministry gave them the go-ahead, but I think that must have been one of the reasons why the top leadership said, enough is enough, we can't allow India policy to be dictated at this low level, we have to take control. What happened in Doklam? Not a single bullet was fired. Not a single soldier was hurt. No Chinese company was affected by Doklam. No Indian company in China was affected by Doklam. Visits were not affected. For God's sake, what is this big thing all about? You know, we are making such a, we are really making a mountain out of a molehill. Doklam to me is a molehill. It was made into a mountain by the establishments and the media of both countries. And this played into the hands of countries which are looking at India and China and they want to see a conflict between India and China. She doesn't want it. Modi doesn't want it. And I think, frankly, the realization that there are a lot of people in both countries in very high positions who, for whatever reasons, 
are pursuing policies which could lead to a conflict has led, in my view, to both of them agreeing to meet for this two days in Wuhan. Lastly, if India and China come together as cooperative partners in Asia, what will be the impact on the U.S.'s place in Asia and on Pakistan? What will the Asian landscape look like? We need the U.S. to maintain primacy uh, in, the, in the Indian Ocean. I think it's very important that India should be the prime power in the Indian Ocean. We can't do it alone. We've got to do it in the U.S. We are doing it with the Quad countries. That's great. And for I would like to add on the, the Philippines. I'd like to add on Indonesia. I'd like to add on Vietnam to the Quad and make it seven cornered. It's very important. That's you know. So we need the U.S. very much in that. The U.S. needs us. I don't think that's going to stop. Very frankly, we are both facing the question of radical groups in the West of India. Frankly. A lot of radical groups are there all over the West. I think India and the US must come together to face these radical groups. They are in Africa, they are in parts of Southeast Asia, they are very much there in the, in the Middle East, and we need to come together to face this danger of these radical groups. So whether it's Indian Ocean primacy, whether it's radical groups, whether it's so many other factors, like for example, you know, uh, the joint promotion of technology, which empowers individuals, which makes individuals able to do more on their own rather than groups or bureaucracies. We need to come together with the U.S. That's not going to change, I can tell you. So the Chinese engagement, the Indian engagement, and the U.S. engagement are two separate engagements. Neither country will give you a good deal unless you have the other country on your side. The Chinese are not going to give you a good deal on economics and commerce unless the U.S. is there as our defense partner. The U.S. is not going to give you a good deal on defense, security and technology unless we have a very good arrangement with China on commerce and on trade. So we, you can't have a healthy relationship with either country unless you have a healthy relationship with both countries. I think this is something which all our brilliant analysts in both China and India need to understand very clearly. Because I'm in favor of both countries working, well, for us, working with a strong relationship with both countries. And I do believe in the future that three countries, the United States and China, are not going to go to war. Even on North Korea, frankly, in my view, what could happen, assuming there's a conflict, the U.S. is, of course, you know, along with South Korea, may devastate a large part of North Korea. But they're also, in my view, going to open the door for Chinese forces to come and occupy the nuclear facilities of North Korea. And let's not forget the nuclear facilities of North Korea are mostly on the China border. Frankly, this is shadow boxing. There's not going to be a trade war. If there's a trade war between the US and China, the dollar is going to be worth maybe five rupees. Let's be honest. You know, it's not going to happen. Chinese economy is going to have 100 million more unemployed people. It's not going to happen. So this, you know, this dream world that we seem to be having in India about India and, and, and U.S. jointly fighting against China. It's a dream thing. The U.S. have got, I, you know, I was on a TV program and somebody was talking about Seychelles and here and there and China, and we are, doing, we are dealing with China here. All the countries that she named have way more commerce, trade and relations with China than they have with India. So what are they talking about? Pakistan, in my view, it's unavoidable that that country will break up. And it's important from the human rights point of view that the Sindhis, 
the Saraikis, the Pashtuns, the Mohajirs be given honor and respect. The Chinese and the Americans both. For them, Pakistan is only the people in Khaki. Outside people in Khaki, there's no Pakistan. So the only people they are backing and supporting, both China and the US, are, is the Pakistan army. And the Pakistan army is the enemy of the Pakistan people. So either the Pakistan people ensure that the military become an army which goes back to the barracks and is not this malign force, or in my view, Pakistan will break up. And the Chinese are very realistic people. If they see that a country is heading to a breakup, I don't believe they're going to try and dump a lot of money or create any kind of problems for that. And in my opinion, India, Iran, Afghanistan, the US, you know, China, all of us need to work together to understand how to deal with a Pakistan that is so, you know, that is so obsessively moving towards suicide.